Joe, how are you? You know, exactly the same as as last time. <laughs> okay, I'll 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 ask a question then. What's your favorite weapon? My favorite weapon. Uh, my... One of my friends used to ask his sons at birthday parties, "What's your favorite weapon?" All the mothers were always horrified by the enthusiastic responses. Well, the answer in my case is is probably obvious that my favorite weapon is language. Ah, very good. I was hoping for something. Like that. <laughs> I'm glad not to disappoint. We have a guest today. We often have guests. We don't always have guests, but today we do. And my first question, I warned her just before we started this, that some of my questions might be silly, and this is no exception. How do you pronounce your last name, Nina? Oh, that's not a silly question. Everybody asks that. Well, okay. Nina Munteano. It's it's pronounced Munteano. Uh, did you notice I kind of wanted to bring my hands up? Munteano when I said it. Well, yeah, that's the next question then is should we say it always with such flair? That's it. Okay, first of all, it's from it's a Romanian name. Munte means a mountain. Anu mm-hmm. means from, so I'm from the mountain. Okay. It is meant to be in Romanian pronounced with that U the way it is, Munteano, but I never pronounced it that way. I pronounce it Muntiat. I've anglicized it. Yeah. Hmm. And I was taken to task. I was on a radio show with a Romanian Uh-oh. Who, who was the host. And she, on the air, first thing she did to me was she said, Nina, you're mispronouncing your own name. <laughs> she, she, she pronounced it right. And then I went, I know, I mean, there you are, right? That's the first thing that you encounter. I just, I was just. Who, who isn't mispronouncing their own name? Like I don't Mahoney know. is not the pronunciation of my name. No way. Really? I'm, in fact, I'm the, really the first generation in my family to have it pronounced Mahoney. My father grew up as a Manny. And before that, it was almost certainly Mahoney and probably O'Mahoney before that. Whoa, <laughs> so, Mahoney. And you know what? My father's family grew up in a mountain in northern New Brunswick. So I feel like your last name is the Romanian version of my last name. So really, I, I should be Joe Mun- Muntiano. Oh, and I could be Nina Mahoney. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just to finish that up, Nina is my actually my nickname. I'm not going to give you my real name. Nina means little girl. Oh. So I'm the little girl from the mountain. That means Heidi, right? Is anyone old enough to know about that? That's great. Oh, wow. Well, welcome to the podcast, Heidi. Thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So what we have done in this podcast so far is we ask our guests to tell us about themselves themselves. Oh, this is where I start. Well, I always kind of go funny when people ask me these open questions like that, because what am I? I'm, I'm everything. I'm so many things. I contain multitudes. I, exactly. And there's a quote, right? I am paradox. Well, how does that go? It's Walt Whitman is all I can tell you for sure. <laughs> I'm allowed to be paradoxical because I am multitudes. And I am. I'm an ecologist primarily, for sure. I, I have a passion for the environment, for what we're doing, and preserving it. And I'm a naturalist. I love nature. I go to the woods and the the river here where I live. Uh, I'm blessed with that ability every day, no matter what the weather. And I'm out there enjoying it. But I'm also a mother, traveler, discoverer, explorer. If I was uh, a man in the 17th century, Mark, or wherever, I would have been an explorer. I've been out there like, you know, except I'm scared of water, which is kind of weird. 
That shocks me. That's super ironic. Having said that, I love water. I'm scared. Yeah, I'm scared of it, but I love it. And I studied it my entire life. I've just called the irony police. They're on <laughs> yeah, their way. Yeah, you did, right? Okay. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. Wow. I got over my fear of water as a child. I couldn't swim by studying it. I was fascinated by it. It makes sense now. Uh, yeah. As a young girl, I would, you know, like Da Vinci, I was looking at all the, the, the patterns of water and how water did things and all its anomalous properties. And I just became so fascinated. And it, in a sense, that became my doorway into my career as an ecologist and a limnologist. And uh, I pursued my writing accordingly, not knowing that I was writing ecofiction. I called it science fiction which I guess it is. I wrote a bunch of short stories, all to do with, speaking of irony, the ironies of existence and, and what we're doing to the environment. And uh, all my short stories are ironic. They all have twist endings and stuff. But the novels are a little bit more of a treatise on the human condition and how we are paradoxical creatures and how nature is paradoxical and how we integrate. And that's actually also why I love this book that I want to talk to you about. Two things. Number one, oh, first of all, what's the book? It's The Overstory by Richard Powers. And I think he got some awards for it. Winner of the National Book Award. There you go. It's this fat little thing. You can't see it because we're on radio sort of thingy. But it's, uh, oh, it's over 500 pages long. It's called The Overstory. So you can imagine overstory trees right trees are the overstory and the understory are the shrubs and everything else in a forest and what i loved about that book was a number of things but that the story that it told was number one very personal but also very global and it was very meaningful and it, it moved me these days more than anything else although even as a teenager I mean, I was reading Karl Marx when I was a teenager. Uh-oh, should I have said that to Yes. You? It's the other <laughs> irony police coming after no, me. No, that's but not ironic at all. I was, uh, I was reading, you know, uh, Communist Manifesto. I was reading all kinds of cool stuff back then. And I got into some frivolous stuff <laughs> later on. And nowadays I find that I'm really gravitating toward ecofiction. And that's not just because I write it, but it is because I write it. Because, you know, I mean, I'm one in the same. That's my life right now. And I uh, consider myself an environmental activist, for sure. I'll go and confront somebody who is littering. I don't care how big they are. I mean, my son is, you know, two heads taller than me already. So who cares, right? Anyway, um, but but to go back to the book. Uh, so the book is basically about this a nine nine characters. It follows the life stories of nine characters and their journey with trees. Each character is presented in the beginning. This this guy Powers is so cool. He presents the characters first, and then he mingles them all together into this this wonderful flow of narrative. And each character is associated with a particular tree. Mm. So right away, the tree is an avatar of the character or is the character an avatar of the tree? We're not sure which. We think first it's the character, the tree is the char- uh, an avatar of the tree. But by the end of the book, I think it's the other way around. Mm. So the trees are the real characters and they come through these people. 
they represent these trees, an aspect, whatever's going on. You know, the trees are going extinct, and some of these trees do go extinct. One's the chestnut tree, was presented initially. And so, so there's ironical connections between these characters and the trees as well. Some are good folk and some are not so good folk. One person gets electrocuted, but comes alive again. And then her voice seems to integrate into the forest to change another character's pathway. So there's all kinds of, it's not magic realism, but it's, it's, there's shades of that. But what Powers does is, is it's very powerful in that he keeps it very real. It's present day, takes place in present day, and it, and it kind of talks about things that are current right now issues of deforestation, issues of what's going on, particularly in the West Coast, because that's where one of the characters ends up going. With the giant redwoods and whatnot. Yes, Mm -hmm. the giant trees, the Douglas firs and redwoods. And she, of course, identifies with the Doug fir, the giant Doug firs. And of course, um, out there at UBC is is, uh, Suzanne Simard, one of my heroes, who studies trees, not just trees, but the fact that trees form communities. Yeah, and they communicate. And societies, and they communicate in many different ways, through mm-hmm. their aerosols, through their roots, through the fungi that live there, the mycorrhiza that trade goods with the trees. You know, the, mm-hmm. the fungi actually kill the springtails. Almost literally, it's really weird, like a pet. They kill the springtails and bring it to the tree and say, there you go, now give me some sugar. You know, it's, it's this weird, wonderful thing that's going on. And Powers has this gorgeous language that he uses to allow us to literally fall into the duff of the forest, you know. Into, into the what of the forest? The duff. The duff. What is the duff? The duff is the top litter. It's almost the same as litter, but it's most it's other things as well as it is another way of saying litter, but it's. I think it's more specific to the leaves. And, and, uh, and that's an actual term? Yeah, duff, D-U-F-F. Oh, wow. Anyway, so I meant to, you know, uh, explore the, 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 the feeling of being in the forest. And he does that. And right. you're there with the character. You're there feeling, smelling. Without being overly, you know, Baroque, uh, he's quite sensual in his writing, mm-hmm. and matter of fact. But Do you know much about him? Or? No, I don't. But I do know a lot about Suzanne Simard. One of the reasons I bring Suzanne Simard into the thing is one of his characters might as well be Suzanne Simard. If you know of her history, she, was, she started off in the forestry industry. And as you can imagine, what she had to do. Mm-hmm. And then she broke away from it with all this trees are communicating. And you can imagine how that fell over there, how right. that went. Mm. And they kind of went, listen, you, you're not getting any funding. And literally very similar to what this poor character went through. And the character, in fact, is a disabled person. This main character, Patricia Westerford. So um, mm-hmm. Patricia is, is actually has a disability. She can hardly hear. So that's ironics, right? So speaking of ironies, we were earlier. There's lots of irony here, too, in, in the way that things are connected. And, and the reader is allowed to make those connections. He doesn't pump, you know, bump you on oh, the head. Oh, that's great. With, you know, this is this, this is this. He lets you do that. But it's all intermingled and it weaves beautifully. So the ironies with her character are, are amazing, the way they go through with her journey. And in some ways, her journey becomes the 
the uh, main th uh, thread by which all the other characters come through. So, you know, uh, in some books, I don't know if you've ever had that problem where too many subplots are happening. Right. Two is a book is just so bloody dense and you go from one chapter to the next and you, you literally lose people. You end, you end with Peter in chapter one or chapter three, and then you go chapter four, five, six with all these other characters. And you come back to Peter and you're kind of going, who, who is Peter again? Who is this? Who's Peter? Do I care about Peter? And then you, you lose it, right? You as soon as that happens, you've lost it. He doesn't do that. He has a lot of characters. He's got nine characters. He's, he's, he's juggling. Yeah. But each of them is somehow underneath the main story, right? That Patricia Westerford following through. I love it. I mean, you don't notice it as a writer as a, and a, as a teacher of writing, right? I teach at U of T. So I'm looking for these mm -hmm. things. Yeah, I have a writerly question, just so that I have a better picture of the book. Is what perspective is it told from? Like, is it third person omniscient? Is it third person point of view? It's third person. It is. Yeah. But is he switching points of view? When he's moving to the other characters? Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's hard to write. So, but the point is character A, character B, we won't name them all. Mm. But character A is never in character B's story. And character B is never in character A's story. They do right. come all together, mm. but not in one place. They don't even meet each other. Uh, well, that's not true. A couple of them do. But it's it remains in third person limited limited third-person voice. So it's, it's very easy to follow. I mean, this is one of my favorite, all-time favorite books. And it informs my own writing. And, yeah. and my own writing literally informs the whole field. So it's good for me to know what else is out there. So I'm, it's not that I'm doing research all the time, but I guess I am doing research all the time. Because you're really all in mm -hmm. a conversation with one another, really. Like Powers yeah. writing about that and you writing about your work and, and others. Like I'm thinking of uh, the woman who wrote uh, Lab Girl, which was yes. largely about yeah, the Lab trees. Girl. Yeah, yep. Yep. And, uh, and even uh, from SF Canada, Dale Sproul wrote, uh, I know he has a book about trees. Oh, he does? Okay. Yeah. I'll have to check that. I didn't know that. There was a, a quote here, someone who had done a review of, of the book. Let me just check it. Benjamin Markovitz of The Guardian. This is what he wrote. Hmm. There's something exhilarating in reading a novel whose context is wider than human life. Like Moby Dick, the overstory leaves you with a slightly adjusted frame of reference. And I found while reading that some of what was happening to his characters passed into my conscience like alcohol into the bloodstream and left a feeling behind of grief or guilt even after I put it down. Oh. And that's, you know, whoa. He was touched. He was moved. He was challenged. All these things through story, not some article telling you, mm -hmm. you know, points and stuff. But to be honest, I find partly because of the epic scope of this book, and I mean, I liken it to the fact that the place is character. I mentioned that before. The trees, the forests, they come alive through the characters that interact with them. So I don't know if you've read Thomas Hardy. Mm -hmm. It's an old classic. Oh, yeah. yeah. Egdon, Egdon Heath. Egdon Heath is a character. This Heath literally destroys people and helps people, right? Nurtures mm -hmm. them, depending on who that person is. Herbert's Dune. Same thing, mm. you know, how powerful that planet is, that desert planet that nurtures these giant 
misunderstood worms, giant worms that literally make doom, you, you know, I mean, if you find out the, the ecology of it all, you know, so his characters, his human characters are, like I said before, I think they're the true avatars for the trees that are just, you know, almost symbolically placed there. And then you get that, you get that. I mean, imagine what a way to, to do that. I mean, that he was able to do that to that reviewer. He did the same thing to me. What I really like is like the, the guests that we have in this podcast speak so passionately about these pieces of art. It's really compelling. You really want to enjoy them and savor them yourselves. Oh, me too. Yeah. Good. Good. I hope you do. My to be read list is just getting more, more and insane, more and more insane. It's just, it's, <laughs> just, it's, oh my God, I've got so much good stuff to read. Yep. Oh, that's cool. Are you a fast reader though? Or a slow reader? I am when I have the time to read. Ah, yeah. I've had this horrible pattern that's emerged over the last, I think it's pre-pandemic, but it's certainly, I have trouble reading fiction while I'm drafting. Uh, mm. oh, okay. I find that it just yes, influences in me too yeah. much. So so I do read quite a bit of nonfiction when I'm drafting. Yeah, so do but I. Yeah. And then I, for my holidays, I save, I save like, fiction i think last holiday i read 14 books oh. in 14 days oh, <laughs> and that included God. something by umberto eco so yeah oh, really? <laughs> that was a three book two days kind of thing i don't feel the same at, at all about uh, i will read fiction i mean it takes me so long to write a novel like if i weren't to, to read fiction while i'm writing it there would be like a 12 year drought <laughs> yeah sure <laughs> you know? oh dear oh dear you don't want to but do i that actually i like being influenced by what I'm reading. In fact, I had the experience today. One of our previous guests talked about William Goldman, The mm -hmm. Color of Light. That's so what I, I'm reading uh, right now. Yes, me too. Yes. And I, yes. Oh, there you are. Look at and that. And I You're just finished Act Two, and I was so blown away by how Goldman finished Act Two that it's completely changed the trajectory of the work that I'm currently writing. I realized <laughs> that my Act Two is like, that's not how you finish Act Two. You finish Act Two the way William Goldman finishes Act Two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, you're you're using it for the right in the right way. That's so yeah. I think that that is awesome, and we can all learn, right? We're always learning. We're continually learning. I mean, I've got 13 books behind me, and I'm still oh, wow. learning. Yeah. And my process, my process is changing. This is a weird thing. And as as I gain my experience, I I go this way or that way and I change the way that I approach a book and you know just like what you've done there I think that is awesome can, can you talk about that a bit like how has your process changed mm -hmm. how has it yeah because I'm interested in oh that. well I used to be a strong outliner I used to outline a lot ah, of not a pantser no and now I'm more pantsing and and I write more like uh, Diana Gabaldon, you know. I don't know if she's you've ever heard uh, some of her discussions of her process, and she'll talk about a, a a kernel, and she'll describe it, and she'll literally create a scene, and it's an isolated scene. She has no idea where it's going to fit, but she knows what it is. She's got this thing in her head, right? This image, this feeling, and then she was describing the process, so we do find out how she does that, and then she has a way of finding context for that scene and then places it somewhere as a gift. And what a way to write. Interesting. I mean, it's, you know, mm -hmm. it's good grief. That's you know? like the ultimate prompt. 
Yeah. It's yeah, great. Yeah, actually yeah. it is. Because how does it, it become yeah. and feel organic and holistic doing it that way? And I've no doubt that it does. I, I think partly the connective tissue helps, and then she very likely rewrites that very scene oh. to connect, to then yeah. better connect contextually. I'm sure of it. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. It that's fascinating weird. to me, Nina, because I've I've undergone the same transformation. You're kidding. I used to be a meticulous planner, and like literally, I would write hundreds of pages of character notes and yeah. And my first book, I actually had a painting of the book showing like all of the characters had their own color and their strands. Oh, and that's cool. Other. And it was it was kind of cool, but but yeah, I've I've become a pantser, and that's why I don't like to read novels while I'm writing because i think you're right if in terms of like learning from other authors yeah absolutely but i guess i'm just too porous so i notice that you know my prose starts to look like somebody oh, who i'm reading at the yeah, moment's yeah, prose yeah. which i don't want and i don't think the reader wants either well that that's wise mark you you know understand where your character and what you do and what influences you and you, and you act accordingly that's really smart and and frankly um there's so many amazing nonfiction writers that there's no dearth of things to read. Yeah. I'm like that too. Uh, particularly like you were talking about when you're drafting, when I'm putting things together and like I said, my process has changed. So I'm piecing things together as I move along and I let my nonfiction inform where my story is going to go and how it's going to mm -hmm. proceed. Even which character does what based on this material that I'm garnering. So for instance, this book I'm working on right now uh, starts in Berlin, contemporary Berlin. It's focused on two twin brothers who are very, very different, even though they're identical twins. Uh, I've never been to Berlin, except virtually, and always wanted to go. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother is from there, so I have some of that and friends as well. But the history of Berlin, gorgeous, gorgeous city, full of wonderful things. But what a history, right? The East, East and West mm -hmm, Wall, mm -hmm. the communists, the Soviet side, the West side, and all the things that happened. So I was doing a lot of research, and that research literally created a character. I've never done that before. Like, that character just decided, I am here because of the, you know, it literally materialized <laughs> and went, Boop, I need to be right there. <laughs> Yeah. Stir the pot, you know, it's just amazing. And the fact that we, you know, as seasoned writers, and I think we're all agreeing that as we get more seasoned, we can take, I don't know if it's more risks, we can be a bit more loose about our craft. I don't mean loose in that we don't pay attention, but loose in our, in our structure, uh, more open to possibilities and stuff. And I just love it when that happens. I love it. Yeah, yeah. I, I certainly wouldn't describe myself as a seasoned writer. I'm probably about four stages before that, <laughs> but uh, but I do know what you're you're talking about because I have one novel out, but working on the second novel was definitely looser than uh -huh. than the first novel. You notice know, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, getting that first novel out is huge, isn't it, Joe? I mean, we we all can remember our first novel, all the steps that we had to take to get there. And then what we had to learn about ourselves, about our writing, about the process and everything. So you take that with you to the next one. It's almost like giving birth. Sorry, guys. But when you're a mom, <laughs> you have this one kid up 
And there's so much involved. There's so much unknowns and this and that. The second one, easy peasy. Well, Third <laughs> one, hardly think about it, right? For, and it's, it's the things that you bring with you to the next one. They don't go away. It's like riding a bike, right? All the steps that you get to. Yeah, except it's funny. You mentioned uh, identical twins earlier. In in my case, uh, my second child was 10 minutes after the first one. So we didn't really have a lot of time to <laughs> oh, yeah, absorb the oh, lessons from the kidding, first one. Joe. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But that's extra fun, though, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Definitely. Oh, kids are amazing. <laughs> Back to powers. It has to be a conscious uh, choice by a writer like him to write separate books and not do so under a different pen name, mm-hmm. That's you know, true. which I know is a strategy. Yeah. But maybe in his mind, he wasn't writing ecofiction. Very likely not. He's just writing what he writes. And to be honest, you know, when I was writing ecofiction, I wasn't thinking it was ecofiction. Ah. If you were to present this book honestly to anyone out there in the world, you know, the regular Joe on the street, they wouldn't think it's eco-fiction. They wouldn't name it that. Hmm. If they know this author, they would think of him as, you know, a literary fiction writer. Yeah. A case in point, Margaret Atwood. Right. Margaret Atwood writes so much speculative fiction these days, and she started way back in the 80s with Handmaid's Tale. But did anyone call her a science fiction author, including herself? No. <laughs> lots well. of people did, but she just denied it. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about lots of people, but the point is people who read Margaret Atwood, the people, mostly the people who read her stuff, who have read, have read her previous stuff would never go, well, I'd say never, never say never, wouldn't necessarily put her in that category because they're mm. used to her. Yeah. They're used to her being a literary fiction writer. Oh, you are absolutely correct. And when she started writing like The Handmaid's Tale, I was actually working as the technician on a show called uh, Rudgeon Company. And we would have that conversation. And of course, I was a big science fiction fan. And I would say, well, you know, that's science fiction. And they would get quite annoyed with me. No, that's yeah, not exactly. It can't yeah, possibly be yeah. a science fiction. And I'm like, yeah. yeah, no, it's. And then I said, well, if it isn't science fiction, what is it? And the, the response was, well, it's it's speculative fiction. <laughs> 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 oh, see, they, because they have an idea of what science fiction is. Yeah. And of course, that was Margaret Atwood's little thing as well. She just, yeah. she, she, I think she knew perfectly well what science fiction was. She just didn't want to be pegged, branded at that point. It was not in her interest to be branded there. It is now. Yes. As you can see, she, she openly admits to it. Yeah. So it's, it's changed. Yeah, no problem now. It's, it's gone mainstream now, though. I That's mean, exactly it, Mark. It's gone mainstream, yeah. There are a lot of others like her who are literary fiction authors who are writing speculative fiction. And some of it could be called science fiction. A lot of them. A lot of the eco-fiction stuff that's out there is written by literary fiction authors who have entered that arena, who have entered that area. And I think it's because, as you said, Mark, it's part of it anyway, has gone mainstream. Mm -hmm. And that part that's gone mainstream is essentially under the umbrella of eco-fiction, environmental fiction, climate fiction, any kind of fiction that has to do with what's going on with the world right now and the environment, which is, is on a lot of people's minds right now. And it should be. Yeah. Yeah. And what's happening is we're closing that divide. So literary fiction authors who are, you know, never touch that stuff are now writing it. And science fiction authors 
equally are heading into the more mundane science fiction and heading into literary fiction. And my latest book is an example of that, A Diary in the Age of Water. And it's it's not touted as science fiction. It's And that's the one that's out now, right? Yeah, yeah. that's uh, by Inanna Publications. Yeah. And that's... Um, it's it's the diary of a limnologist, actually. It's touted as women's literature, as okay, climate literature, but it's it's uh, under the umbrella of literary fiction, and I think that's what's happening with a number of writers who are heading into that middle ground mm-hmm. between those genres, and slowly and surely, there's it's more of a continuum than than an, a real gap, you know. Yeah. And as soon as we see some actual uh, zombies appearing in the world, then you'll see Margaret Atwood and the other so-called literary writers writing zombie <laughs> novels, right? Because then it'll be... Well, you're right. You're so right, Joe. <laughs> and I'll be waiting for that moment. <laughs> Wait a minute. Should we be preparing for that moment? <laughs> okay. I think, I think so. Okay. I need to have a talk with you, Mark. Okay. <laughs> but now what I have to ask... What makes something literary fiction as opposed to not literary fiction? Oh, yeah. there's a loaded um, question. Have fun with that one. Well, <laughs> okay. In, in my mind's eye, because because this, this latest book of mine is basically literary fiction with science fiction, whatever, climate fiction, what makes it literary fiction? It's not the use of metaphor, uh, even though metaphor is, is very much part of it, you know, the art. And the answer style. can't be because it's because good. exactly that too because science fiction is is nothing but metaphor right yeah. but literary fiction borrows on real it's set here in the in the here and now and it often uses almost every literary fiction writer I know uses real life as their guiding point to write about the human condition as it is period. And so, I mean, that, that's my loosey-goosey definition of literary fiction. Hmm. Is Kurt Vonnegut literary fiction? <laughs> I don't think so, but, oh, but I mean, God. you could make I, the argument for I, it based on that definition. Yeah. And actually, could. you could even make so an I argument for it based on know. my definition. Okay. Which is that in literary fiction, plot is much less important than style. I would agree with that, totally. The way that prose is written matters a great deal in literary fiction where the plot is less important concern. The story doesn't have to move along because there's no expectation of that. It's, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to bathe in this this author's yeah. mind for a while, and that's perfectly good. I mean, that's perfectly acceptable. Yeah. And I would say, from that perspective, yeah, Vonnegut would qualify because he is quite a stylist. Yes, he is. Yep, I, I would agree. Yes, it's it's uh, you, you touched on something really good there. It's it's theme. Theme is the the thing that that is theme is more so important. important than plot. So yeah. important in literary fiction, it could it could literally have no plot, and it would it would be still good it would still literary fiction yeah 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 when i was a plotter Mm. i would have separate i would have a plot i would have character sketches and then i would have a a thematic sketch as well so here's like here's the themes of the book and here's how things fit into the themes yeah and yeah that was so that was my pretense too as i was trying to write literary fiction as well as science fiction but you you could argue you could argue i mean every story has to have plots you could argue that in literary fiction theme is plot 
or it or replaces plot, plot in some plot is theme. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's more like life. Like it doesn't necessarily make as much sense. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the you know the resolution of the story is not usually as neat yep. in literary fiction. So Nina, do you try to write literary fiction or do you care whether you write literary fiction or That's a great That's question. A, yeah. Um I'd have to think about that and and because I have to think about it, I guess it's not really that important. What's important for me is where I'm going. Me personally, I know I'm on a journey and I know that I'm moving away from what I would call traditional science fiction and it is heading into the literary fiction area. And and part of that is because I really want to focus more on theme, <laughs> as we talked about, Mark, yes. and you know the stylistic side of things. Yeah. And to that point, I'm playing around a lot more with style, with different styles, experimenting with different forms. And that's something that uh, reviewers actually commented on my latest book, The Diary in the Age of Water, that I was experimenting. And they called, in fact, they called it and me brave or something like that. I forget what they, the, the word they used. I think it was meant in a good way. Anyway, uh, but but yeah, I was doing weird things and I liked that. And that whole, whole experimental approach is sort of like experimental jazz, right? The whole art of it is is a lot of fun. Now, who's to say we don't do that in, you know, strictly in the genres, but I think we, in the literary fiction area, there's, it's, there's, I don't know, more of an openness to it or almost even a, an expectation of the art form per se. So then this kind of begs the question, if I may, what are you looking to get out of your writing career? Change the world. <laughs> <laughs> hey, why are you laughing? I can laugh. <laughs> um, I agree. I just I immediately started laughing. Yeah, I couldn't I, help oh, it. Oh, I know. I don't know. Oh, no, seriously, though, I guess. Oh, but it rings true. It does, actually. It's just almost a stupid thing to say, but no. it, in its simplicity, I would think almost every writer wants to do that. Yeah. Have a positive impact yeah. on the world. Yeah, I, I do. But So your your study is limnology, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Tell us what that is and how does it inform your writing? Okay. Is that maybe mm. the secret to what your writing is? Yeah, probably is not such a secret. So the study of limnology is limnos uh, in Greek means water. Ology is a study of, so it's basically the study of water. Yeah. But there are lots of scientific pursuits, genres of science that study water, hydrology uh, mm -hmm. and others, Yeah. Uh, oceanography. So limnology is the study of freshwater, but it's more on a systems basis. Hydrology is more the movement of water and everything else. Limnology studies the chemistry, biology, and physics of water and how it interacts with the watershed. In other words, on a system basis, right. what goes in, what goes out, what changes, what happens in a lake or a river or a stream or whatever, uh, what the dynamics are. And so that's it's a multidisciplinary study within itself, right? It incorporates geography, mm -hmm. climatology, as well as all the different sciences to do with the water itself. And a lot of fun to do. And the biology, I guess, because definitely the biology. The ecosystem will have such a huge impact on oh, definitely. what happens. Yeah. So ecosystem impacts and then the ecosystem within impacts back out and, yeah. you know, the cycle, yeah. et cetera. So it's a, it's like aquatic ecology in a way. Yeah. Uh, but it's more than that. Uh, but it encompasses that. And that's sort of where I started. I started off as a stream ecologist, and then I got into the bigger systems thing, wrote a bunch of papers, 
Some were groundbreaking, which was really cool. Well done. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How, how were they groundbreaking? They discovered something. I discovered something new, and my supervisor allowed me to make literally a 45-degree turn in my, you know, my pursuit of my thesis to pursue this thing. And we wrote a paper together. And uh, it was groundbreaking. It was really oh, cool. So exciting! And it was a discovery. It was an accident. It was an anomaly that I discovered in what I was doing. It's like discovering penicillin. You know, it, yeah. it was just so freaking cool. The woman who wrote uh, Lab Girl. I can't pronounce her last name correctly. It's Hope uh, Jaren or Yaren, yeah, something, something like that. She talks about a moment like that in her book. That that's what she get into science for was to have a moment just like that finding out something new that nobody has yeah. found out before. You can't count on that. You can't plan for that. Mm-hmm. It just happens. I had no idea that was going to happen. Very cool. And it was, uh, I, I bless my supervisor. God bless him. The coolest dude, my supervisor, let me pursue this because it took me away from my thesis to do it. But he recognized what was going on, obviously. A good scientist, in yeah. other words. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, saw the opportunity. Yeah. No, I, I don't believe you've said what it is, though. What is this discovery? Oh, oh. Uh, so I was studying how paraphyton colonize surfaces, paraphyton being attached algae in streams. Okay. And um, I was really looking at different streams, polluted uh, streams, polluted in some way, uh, others and others, chemi- chemically polluted, others agriculturally polluted still chemically, I suppose, naturally, natural organics, and then pristine. And looking at the different communities that were settling there and growing. So settling, colonizing, and then how they grew as a community. So two different things going on there, right? Which settle first, etc. succession. In order to do that, I had to create new substrates for them to settle on, because they settle on anything, right? Any surface, rocks, plants, etc., Right. So I created these, a little slide holder, and I used glass slides, which I thought was really smart. I wasn't the only one, but I thought I was, because the whole idea of the slide is you, you then have your community right there, and then you just go, put it on the microscope, and there it is. Yep. You don't have to do anything, mm. right? You just remove it and put it on there, and, and you look at these guys. And I thought that was brilliant. But what I discovered so that's what I was doing. That was what the thesis was about, looking at which communities form where, how, and all that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. A behemoth of a study, really. So it's like doing a novel, you know? And in the meantime, I discovered a short story, you know, tucked away, this, this uh-huh. weird short story. <laughs> Not a, Okay, so I discovered that depending on which way the slide was oriented to the current, whether it was this way or that way, I guess you can't see. Whether it was parallel or so perpendicular across. or square, yeah, she's she's it's, wiggling her hand. Listener. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, angling I'm, her hand. I'm doing the royal way. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah. um, <laughs> anyway, so I discovered that they colonized the surface differently depending on the way the slide was oriented to the current. So in the slide that was parallel, they preferred the algae, the paraffin preferred the front edge or the back edge and they didn't bother with the middle in the slide that was across the current in other words the current was coming across the slide they grew in patches all across the slide with no preference for the edge mm-hmm. hmm. so i had to figure out why this was happening 
And oh, by the way, I also coined a word, a term, which got used as well. Which I, I'm just blithering here. No, I, no, no. Uh, this is the, the term yeah. was the term was the edge effect. Do you like that? That's cool. No, that's great. Yeah, obviously a YouTube fan. Yeah. <laughs> The edge effect. Yeah, right. There you are. Anyway, so yeah, yeah. I went into, I <laughs> uh, had to go into um, uh, fluid dynamics, particle physics, and all that kind of stuff. I So I talked to various people in, in the university, and I came up with a model to explain it. And it was based on turbulence and laminar flow and settling capacity and quality. Uh, I'm not going to go all into all the details, but basically the nuts and bolts of it is these little, little biddles, these little um, diatoms, mostly diatoms, were caught in this little mini vortex. And it was the had more current, basically. Yeah, that was the yeah. problem. Whereas yeah. in laminar, yeah, yeah. the mic- microcurrent, yeah. laminar flow, they were just flushed they, across, they right? couldn't do it. So yeah. it was all about flow and stuff. And so I created a model, did some, you know, fancy whatever, data processing and modeling and everything, and created a gorgeous little paper. Well, I think that's super cool. You're adding to the body of human knowledge. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. And I even have a, a sequel for you. If the first book is called The Edge Effect, the second one we call The Bono Behavior. <laughs> Actually, I like that. I guess I'll, I'll have to acknowledge you, right? Uh, I will. I'll put you in the sure. front. Sure. <laughs> Feel free. Okay. Now we're, we're actually, we actually are, I must confess, uh, getting close to our, our limit. But I, I do want to ask one more question just to tie up uh, all loose ends, which is why was, is there any particular reason you began your life afraid of water? Oh, I was, I was not a good swimmer. And I think that's reason enough, to be honest. Anyway. Nina, thank you very much for talking to us today. This has been a fantastic conversation. Oh, that was a delight. My pleasure. My pleasure. You guys are fun. Let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. (laughs) Okie dokie. Joe, I'm really enjoying this. This has been fun, but I don't want to do this podcast anymore. You're talking about stopping the podcast. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But I do want to take August off. I just had like a heart attack, Mark. I was just trying to get that rise out of you. (laughs) So yeah, I think we should take August off. I think we should end end of July and come back after Labor Day. I think that's a terrific idea. Why don't we do a special episode to finish the whole thing off? A very special episode? A very special episode, yes. And we're going to launch your book, right? Yes. We're going to launch my book, Adventures in the Radio Trade, with a special live edition of Recreative. That sounds perfect. So we'll do that on the 30th? Sunday the 30th will be a special live edition of Recreative, after which we'll take August off. And then we'll be back on... After Labor Day. After Labor Day. I'll take my white pants off at that point. Your white pants. (laughs) Right, because you're not supposed to wear white after Labor Day. Do I look like someone who pays any attention to that kind of... Do I look like someone who has white pants? (laughs) 